Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Nashville Tour Stop podcast broadcast live from the 8th room here in Nashville, Tennessee. The 8th room was kind enough to rehouse us while our uh, office situation is getting worked out. We moved out of our regular studio and actually as a consequence, we're in a much nicer place now. (laughs) But across the uh, kind of booth-ish area from me now is songwriter extraordinaire and so many other things. Ava Sapelsa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. So I start every show by asking the guests, how did we meet? And do you remember how you and I met? Oh my gosh. Because I don't. We probably met at Belcourt Taps. All right, That's my Belcourt guess. Taps. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Gosh, so many memories lived and died there. When did you um, move to town? I moved to town in 2017. Hey, that's when I moved here too. I feel like I moved here in June of 2017. I moved here in July of 17. We probably so like met the same like age right. Here. Yeah, I think <laughs> we probably met at a writer's round. Right. Right around then. But I honestly can't remember because I've known you almost the whole time I've been here. So <laughs> it's hard to say. Yeah, I feel like that's pretty much how everyone meets at writer's rounds. It's just you you meet everybody all the time and it's hard to remember exactly because they all kind of blur together. Totally. You end up playing like a hundred writer's rounds a year. Yeah. And you don't know, okay, did I meet you at this one or that one or that one? Or did we just meet somewhere random? It's very possible. You know, who honestly, who knows? But I feel like you remember the people that I think I saw you probably at writer's rounds like every single week. So eventually it was Mm -hmm. like, I just see you that was one of basis. those things I tried doing when I first moved here was just being seen, just like being around and like being around a scene. Yes. That's what anytime someone's like, how do I make friends slash meet co-writers and do anything in a music city anywhere? I'm like, just, just be at things. <laughs> you just have to go leave your house. I know it's hard, but you have to go yeah, out. <laughs> to be part of the scene, you exactly. have to be seen. Ex- that's so true. Wow. Put that on a shirt. Yeah. So where'd you move here from? I moved directly from Boston. I'm from Chicago originally, but I went to Berklee College of Music for two years. I dropped out in May and moved here June 1st, so in 2017. So So did your family always encourage you to do music growing up? Yeah, they were always... very encouraging of just finding something that I loved and and telling me to do that, find a way to make it work, basically. That's um, cool. Which I'm I'm really lucky to have that. But my dad, uh, he's retired now, but he was a news anchor, which was also kind of like a a, a job that, especially when he, back you know thirty years ago, whatever, mm-hmm. he, people were like, "That's not a job you can do." <laughs> like, good luck with that, you know. And he was sort of like went against the grain doing that, so and it worked really well for him, and he had a really successful cool. career. So. They always were like, dad did it. You could do it too. Pick your thing and do it. And so they did. Uh, did music come along pretty early in your life then? Yeah, I was always, I mean, like most of us writing little songs in my, in my diaries, doing musical <laughs> theater, singing. And, I was a theater nerd too. Oh my gosh. Yep. That was the start of it. But I, I, uh, realized very quickly that I was only getting parts because I could sing, not because I could act. Was <laughs> that was the only actress. reason I ever got cast. I could not dance for the life of me. Oh my gosh. I could dance and sing, but like my acting, like I thought I was like really putting on a show and you watch videos and I'm like zero emotion on my face, like just terrible acting. Was songwriting something you started as a kid then? Yeah, I would make up songs and and um, I found like an old journal from when I was like literally six and really? I didn't know how to write melodies down, but mm-hmm. I wanted to remember them. So I would write an arrow over each word, whether the melody went up or down or That's stayed cool. the same. And didn't yeah, know how to so actually do the notation. I didn't know. How, yeah, I didn't. And I didn't have any way to record it. So I was like, this is just going to have to do. Hopefully I remember it. <laughs> do you remember the name of your first song that you actually like started and finished? Yes, I was in. um sixth grade and I wrote a song about a boy that I liked (laughs) I could I still remember like how it goes and everything and I went around and sang it to everybody hoping that it would get back to him and I was like (laughs) I wrote this song about Will and I when I think back to the song I'm like honestly the melodic structure wasn't that bad lyrics questionable melodies all right so you still have the diary that's got those lyrics and everything oh yeah yeah that's cool I still have it all my old drummer from high school, I was in a band when I was like 16 years old and he texted me out of the blue once. It might have been a few years ago uh, here in Nashville, but he was moving out of his childhood house going up to, I think he lives in like Illinois or something now, but he texted me and I hadn't talked to him for a long time. He's like, hey dude, can I call you? I was like, sure. Like, what's up? <laughs> he said, hey, I found something that I think you'll want and I just want to mail it to you and I want it to be a surprise. And I said, okay, sure. Here's my address. 
And then I got it in the mail and he found the spiral notebook that oh had my, my first song in it from our first band. That's amazing. Yeah, Wait, so, how old were you? Oh, it was the coolest thing to get in the mail. How, what grade? How old was that? I was 15 when okay. I wrote my first That's song. That's amazing. I Love had tried it. writing before that, but uh, I, I could never figure out like, well, how do I know what to say? And then right. I forget what, what happened and it just clicked. I was like, oh, I just say whatever I want. And yeah, that's, there you that's go. all songwriting. And that's all is. it is. Exactly. <laughs> wow. <laughs> did uh did you were you ever in bands or were you always a songwriter solo I artist yourself? I was a solo artist. I started playing. I'm from born and raised in the Chicago suburbs and okay. I started playing um like coffee shops and bars that would let, you know, a 14-year-old in, 13-year-old <laughs> in, which were few and far between, but I started doing that or like craft fairs, things like that. Right. Um around the area and when I'd go on vacation and stuff like that, I'd find little gigs I could do and um, put out, you know, sold basically my mixtapes <laughs> that I put on Spotify and brought my burnt CDs to school and would sell them to people for $5. And I ended up like super briefly when I got to Berkeley, I had done solo stuff all the way through high school. And then I, for whatever reason, found out that there was a ska band that needed a lead Whoa. singer and a songwriter. And I had never listened to ska music, but I was like, <laughs> I bet I could do that. So I auditioned and they picked me and you, I was in a ska band a ska for a year. Band? And I wrote an entire album of ska music. Oh my God. <laughs> and the then, <laughs> then I quit because I was like, I don't have time to keep doing this. But they put the music out with a different singer. I like wrote all of it, rehearsed all of it. And then I quit, but they were like, can we still use the songs? And I was like, sure. And so they recorded it all with someone else. This is why I love doing the podcast is because I've known you for <laughs> six years and you just dump. I was I was in a ska band. I did a ska record. Like <laughs> my brain is exploding right I now. I know. It's so ridiculous. It's something I like forget about. But I when I I'd, I'd have to find the <laughs> recordings, but I could send it to you. And I mean, what was the ska record called? Do you remember? The band was called Tenfold Path, but okay. I can't remember what they called the record because I didn't actually like record any of it but it's all my my compositions I don't think it did anything but I definitely lost some hearing from I was rehearsing every week with a full I mean horns like everything <laughs> you know and like I think like that mighty, I have hearing loss the whole from, deal. yeah from like tiny practice rooms at Berkeley with like an entire horn section like in wow. my ear the entire time yeah so so good memories. Uh, when when you were in college what was the point that kind of click that you're like, I don't want to keep doing this. I want to just move to Nashville and go for it. I, before I got to college, I kind of knew I was going to do that. Um, I went to a boarding school for music also for okay. two years of high school, my junior and senior year, it's called Interlock and Arts Academy. They had a songwriting program, which was like brand new. Now I think that's a little more common, but back then, um, it was, I graduated in 2015 from high school and I had done two years of like living away from home studying music, barely taking academics. Like mm -hmm. I think I very, it was very, uh, debatable whether or not I actually like got a GED. <laughs> but, um, so when I got to college, I had already done two years of, of dorm life and all that. So I was sort of like, I'm just going to save the money, get what I want. And I didn't, um, I didn't take like the requ required classes at Berkeley. I sort of just took whatever I wanted because right. I knew I wasn't graduating. So I didn't need to get a lot of the prereqs and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I made a trip down to Nashville uh, and I, I met some Nashville writers and they were like, you should just drop out. Actually, some of them, I still <laughs> like Danny Myrick, who I still write with. He still writes here. He's right. awesome. And he's had a great career. And I was 18 and he, my mom was there too. And he was like, you're pretty good. I think you should just drop out of college and move to Nashville. <laughs> and my mom was like, you should do it. And I was like, what? what? And so I flew back to Boston and was like, all right, cool. I'm just going to finish the semester and then leave. And my like, family was supportive. This is what people usually say. Don't drop out. Finish your degree. Exactly. No. And it's the best thing I ever did for me. Like right. some people, I think you need to do the whole, you know, everyone's different. But for me personally, mm -hmm. it was the perfect amount of time. I got down here right before my 20th birthday and sort of got a head start. I finished college by the hair of my chinny chin chin. <laughs> I transferred three times, changed majors oh my four times. Did you do music? I or? hated it. I started with music technology okay. and then I was a, uh, I think it was like some kind of arts major, general arts major. And then I was a music theory and composition major. And then I all. just, yeah, I eventually decided like none of this is what I want to do. I right. want to write songs. I want to write lyrics. 
And I was going to the University of Missouri at the time, and they didn't have any kind of a program like that. All they wanted you to do was write chamber music and choir music. Yeah. I was like, this sucks. <laughs> and I was taking classical guitar lessons. And as my uh, guitar teacher back then so lovingly put it, you know, of all of my students, you have the most room to grow. Oh, my gosh. And I was like, bro, I'm an adult. <laughs> I know you just said I am your worst student. That is so funny. That's and hilarious. I'm not a bad guitar player. I'm an accomplished guitar player, but I hated classical music. Yeah. I mean, hey, if it's not nothing you want to do. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So after that, I just got out of his office. I was like, bro, I'm I'm leaving. He said, well, we need to finish our lesson. I said, "I'm no, I'm dropping out. Like, I'm Amazing. done with this. And he, he called me and he tried emailing me. He tried reconciling situations like, no, this is all on you. Like, I'm done with this. And when I, I mean, came back to school eventually, I was like, what credits do I need to graduate? And it was a couple of English classes and stuff. So I just took whatever I needed to get out and graduated and immediately moved to Nashville. Incredible. That's great. You oh, did it was the worst time of my life. <laughs> So was there ever anywhere else that you considered moving or was it that one trip that just decided Nashville for you? I realized when I was at Berkeley that I was kind of fighting the fact that I like to do country music mm -hmm. because going to both Interlochen and Berkeley, you're around a lot of people who are like great, incredible musicians, but a lot of them are classically trained, jazz trained, whatever, mm -hmm. and they they sort of looked down on country music. Right. And so I was like, I need to do, I need to write with seventh chords. I need to do like jazzy <laughs> stuff, which I still love doing that stuff. But I like really turned my back on country music, even though it's what mm -hmm. I naturally wanted to do. And I realized after like one year at Berkeley of doing that, that I was like, um, when I came down to Nashville and stuff, I realized like there's a huge industry here. These people are cool. They're writing cool music. And they're nice. And they're nice. And it's a great place to live. Like, I should actually do this. So right. I really started to embrace the fact that I was writing country music. And so it seemed like the natural place to go. And um, I just uh, I knew that I wouldn't be able to afford living in L.A. And so that's um, why I didn't go there. Yeah, exactly. And then it was just like, OK, may as well go to Nashville. I think some of the people that go try L.A. and I know you know lots of them, too, but they move to Nashville yeah. like after a year or something. Yeah, I mean, it's just. Way yeah, easier there, to live there are our own little like Nashville refugees, California refugees, <laughs> Literally. because they just can't afford to live in an apartment with six other dudes. And it's it sounds miserable exactly. trying to make exactly. it out there, especially when I mean, I worked serving jobs, nanny jobs, like literally mm -hmm. every odd job in the book, Postmates, delivery, everything um, when I moved here. And and I was paying four hundred fifty dollars a month in rent and I was still like you know, Still working a lot and eating oatmeal for four days until I got paid again. <laughs> so I can't imagine having lived in LA and having to do that, you know, and trying to have a music career too. Right. It's no wonder everyone out in Los Angeles is so skinny is because they can't afford <laughs> it's to eat. They're eating oatmeal for the whole month, <laughs> not just four days. Yeah. What was it like moving here as a songwriter that only really had that connection through Berkeley? It was definitely, um, it was scary more. I think I always knew like, I'm going to figure out how to do the career thing. Like I, I tend to just kind of, you know, be adaptable, I think. Um, but I was more worried about like, how am I going to make friends? How am I going to meet people? What do I do? Um, and the first three months were okay. Cause I moved here over the summer and mm -hmm. a lot of my friends from Berkeley also moved down to do summer internships. So I had okay. like all these friends from college and it was great. We're having a blast. That's cool. And then they all left in August and oh. I was like, and I have no friends again. I got to figure this out. So I did what we were talking about at the beginning of this. I just started going to writer's rounds and writing with literally everybody that I could. And those people started becoming my friends. And, um, once I had friends, it, everything else seemed a lot easier. Um, but I was, again, I was 19 about to turn 20 and I couldn't get into bars. I couldn't, you know, go out with people. I mean, I had fake IDs mm -hmm. and, um, tried my best, but <laughs> it was hard until I turned 21 because all my friends were older than me. Um, and so that was like maybe the biggest obstacle because so much networking and, career stuff happens at bars here. So it, uh, that was it, the one thing that was a little tough at first. I hate admitting that. Like going it's to so Red true. Door Midtown is an unfortunate necessity for it what is. we do. Especially early on. I've, I haven't been to mid to Midtown in general for about mm -hmm. two years, but I used to go all the time right. and just solely for like career stuff. And it was tough when I was yep. 19. It, but it's just a proximity thing. Exactly. 
just seeing who's there and seeing who's in the room. And I mean, it happens so much where you literally don't realize like, oh, shoot, that person's successful. That person's famous. And you don't know. Exactly. And you learn names of people. Like, I think so much is even if you don't meet them there, you start to realize like, okay, who do I want to know? Who do I yes. want to be around? And what is the goal here? And and when when you first move, you don't, unless you really do your research, like I only knew a handful of songwriters that were successful. I could right. only name a few. And after the first couple of months, I was like, all right, here's 50 <laughs> people that I aspire to work with one day. And a lot of that just comes from seeing them and someone being like, oh, that's so-and-so. Like, that's, that's, exactly. that's the girl that I want to write with. That's I'm- the girl that wrote so-and-so. And you're like, oh crap. Okay, cool. I'll make a note of that. And then I've done the thing and I'm sure you have too, where you're like, I don't have a connection to you, but through like three people. I do. Oh yeah. And then you just one person at a time, work your way. <laughs> that's the beauty of Nashville. You're only like two or three degrees of separation away from Keith Urban at all times. I know. <laughs> it's, it's whatever. What is that? The Kevin Bacon effect or whatever? Yes. Where it's six yeah. degrees of separation <laughs> I think that's from Kevin Bacon. Is, yep. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's so cool about Nashville is that some of the biggest stars really do just live here. Yeah. And my grandma asks me all the time, have you met Keith Urban? Oh my gosh. She, she so desperately wants me to meet Keith Urban That's just because so she funny. loves Nicole Kidman. Oh yeah. It's like not <laughs> even about Keith. It's about Nicole. I get that. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't care one bit about Keith Urban himself. She, she just wants his wife to know that my grandma loves him. That is, <laughs> I'm sure he gets that all the time. If, yeah. I, if you're Keith Urban, like 100% people are coming up to you and being like, I love your wife. And he's probably right. like, I love her too. It's cool. And that's one thing I love about this town is seeing people like Hardy or Kelsey Ballerina or whoever uh, posting on their Instagrams at places we go. Exactly. And they're not out of reach. They're, they're just around. Yeah. And that's why it's so cool because it makes it, I want, I don't want to say more attainable, but more realistic about how young songwriters can get involved. Totally. That's the most exciting. I think, I mean, the first like two, three years I lived here, Every day I was like, this is magical. I'm here. Mm-hmm. Like I'm around. I'm not that far away from it now. And I, now that I've, you know, I'm going on, we're going on six years almost living here. I, I have to remind myself now, like this is, I'm still here. Like I'm, I'm still, still living here. the dream and you get used to it. And I, I never want to be that person that loses sight of the dream or the magic or gets jaded or whatever. But over time, obviously it, mm-hmm. you get more comfortable and you get used to that. But every now and then, like when I'm driving, across the bridge to East Nashville and you see the skyline and you're like, oh crap, I live, I live here. Like, that's pretty cool. I'm here. I'm doing like young me would be happy for me. I feel the same way seeing the skyline because I grew up in a relatively small town in Missouri, but uh, I mean, given, given the size of Nashville, it was small. It was a college town. I had about 80,000 people. So it wasn't a, a small place, but it was never a songwriting place. Right. We had our little pocket. There was like six or seven of us who we would go and play the like dive bar open mic <laughs> where if you played, you'd get free pizza. And yep. I, I was so poor in college. I wasn't playing because I wanted to. I was playing because I couldn't afford to eat dinner anywhere else. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And when I realized it was like, I'm never going to do anything that amounts to what I think my career should be in Missouri. I was like, I just have to get out. Yeah. And that was when I started looking for the places that arts do happen. And Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, just none of it felt right. And I visited my cousin in Nashville and I was at Tin Roof Broadway. Oh my god. I think it was like 11 in the morning. I was sitting by myself just watching some dude do cover tunes by himself. And this old, old man just walks up and sits right next to me at the bar and he goes, he went from around here, is he? Like, nope. He goes, you going to move here? I'm like, maybe. He goes, can I buy you a beer? I'm like, yes. And it was that I really hate admitting Southern hospitality is real. Oh, it is though. It's it is. totally real. And some of these people, they just, they don't want anything from you except to talk for a minute. That's so, that's like a movie scene. That's hilarious. Yeah. Wow. Love that. That's why I really just kind of fell in love with how kind people are here. Totally. And I'll tell people all day long, especially like young songwriters who are brand new to town. How do I get involved? It's like you can write great songs, but if you're a jerk. Oh, yeah. Nobody will remember that. Yeah. I have worked with people who write less than good songs because they're fun to be around. Totally. So much more often. Absolutely. Yeah. Just being a nice person will get you way further, I think. (laughs) No doubt. Yeah. So. We have so much to talk about. Um, 
Let's take a quick commercial break and we'll come back and talk about the world of publishing and then the world of uh, the nonprofit. Love Coming it. right back Sounds here great. on the Nashville Tour Stop Podcast. And we're back with the Nashville Tour Stop Podcast. Ava Sapelsa sitting here in the booth with me today. Ava, you are one of the uh, few people who at least I knew early on who what I would have called made it. <laughs> so many kids come to town and they're like, I'm going to get a deal. And most of them don't. You did. <laughs> Somehow, so, yeah, here we are. I, I know all about this, but would you please tell our listeners here uh, who you got your deal with and some of the steps that led to the publishing deal itself? For sure. So... I signed my deal. Actually, I'm, I just entered the fourth year of my deal, which is crazy. But um, four years ago, I signed my first publishing deal with um, it's a joint venture with Kingpen Music and Warner Chapel Nashville. Okay. Um, and I man, I did all the steps that it takes. Some people I think I, I watched a lot of people move here after me and very quickly within, you know, six months or whatever, just sort of magically like, oh, I just met this publisher saw me playing at a writer's <laughs> round and they offered me a deal. And that is not what happened for me, <laughs> but that does happen. But that is not my story. I did every single step. I think that you normally no would shortcut. go through. No. Um, I, I think that like if people ask this sometimes, because I mean, it's the dream is to get paid to write songs. Like that's, I mean, that's been my dream. That's every day that I was serving at a restaurant, I would think like, Oh, I don't have to do this forever. Like I'm going <laughs> to figure out a way to not do this forever. Um, and the first step I would say is what we've talked about a couple times and being seen going out, going to writer's rounds and playing writer's rounds. Right. I played a writer's round at least two or three times a week for like the first year. I mean, the day I moved to Nashville, June 1st, 2017, I rolled in at 4 p.m. and I played at Belcourt Taps at 7 p.m. Wow. So I was just like, you I'm going to... wasted gonna, no time. I knew three people and I emailed, asked if I could set up around and invited the three people I knew to play a writer's round because I was like, I just, gonna, I'm going to get the ball rolling. And um, that was the most important thing at first to just meet co-writers. And then naturally, I think you sort of grow out of certain co-writers. I was just writing with anyone for a while. Like I just needed to understand how co-writing worked. I didn't co-write at all. I solo wrote everything when I moved here. I had hundred percenters and I didn't realize that that was an asset at the time. Mm -hmm. I thought everyone did that, but I was playing writer's rounds and being like, I wrote these by myself. And that helped, I think, to meet some of the instrumental people early on mm -hmm. who had already been in town, already knew some of the people. And they were like, oh, you wrote that alone. Okay. Well, clearly you can write a song. Let's try writing together. And I was fortunate enough. I mean, some of the early, early people that um, I sort of started working with were Austin Burke, who's still an artist mm -hmm. in town. He's awesome. He had just started to when when Spotify playlisting was sort of like the only way to right. break through pre TikTok, all of that. He was really hitting a stride on the hot country playlist. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a song with him and Jesse LaBelle, who's also still a writer artist in town. Um, and it was my first cut ever. I, I knew that I wanted to write for other people when I moved here. You'll that never was always forget my the goal. first cut. Yeah. So that was my first ever like, you know, song I could play out and be like, someone recorded this and people kind of knew who he was. So that was helpful. Mm -hmm. And um, when he put that one out, it, I mean, it was, I think it was my second release, my first cut, but my second song to actually come right. out. And now this was slower, correct? This It's called slower. Yep. And it made it on new music Friday, hot country. Like it just like streams like crazy. So that was super helpful for me to be able to take that to other writers who were maybe a step above mm -hmm. me and be like, Hey, I have one song. Like, please I listen to cut. my one, one cut, you know? And Austin started pulling me into things too. Cause he still was sort of building out his co-writer base as well. So mm -hmm. I, I really like, he was so awesome. He and Jesse were both so awesome with inviting me in on rights with people that I had no business writing with at the time. <laughs> and they, I just sort of rode their coattails. And I That's mean, cool. Austin, when Austin was offered a deal, I'll never forget this. It didn't end up, neither of us ended up signing at this place, but he had an offer at a place and he emailed the publisher that was offering him a deal and said, if you sign me, you need to sign my co-writer Ava, listen to her songs. And that was my first publishing meeting ever. Wow. 
Um, That's why relationships and are that is why, so important. Exactly. So that is like, and I think the beauty of, I'm sure this happens in other music cities too, but Nashville is so special because you really do want your people to win as well. Mm-hmm. And so Austin, you know, started like just get, anytime he had an opportunity, he pulled me in on it too. He made his Opry debut with my song. I was backstage at the That's Opry awesome. too. So stuff like that, that really helped me sort of get in on the industry, but it still was a couple of years until I, I signed my deal mm-hmm. after that, but that helped a lot. And I ended up getting an offer from a small company that I didn't end up signing with. I still write with their people and they're awesome, but I had to get an attorney because I had an offer. So I very you didn't quickly, know what any of the fancy legalese yeah, meant. Yeah, and I, I knew, I was like, I know that I need to get a lawyer. That is something <laughs> that has been burned into my brain from Berkeley. If you're listening to this and you don't know this, get a lawyer before you sign a contract. <laughs> um, so I I asked, you know, the couple people I knew in the industry that were sort of mentor-ish mm-hmm. to me, like, hey, do you know anyone that would represent me or at least like look through this deal with me? And I ended up meeting my attorney who was so awesome. She was sort of new to her firm also. Okay. So she wanted someone to invest time in. So she started working with me and barely charged me anything. She was incredible. And when I, she basically, I ended up not signing this deal and waiting because she was like, it's your first offer. Like I guarantee you, if you wait, you'll have a deal within a year. That is more money, you know, better terms. And I was like, at the time, I'm like, I just want to quit my waitressing job. Like, please don't be wrong here. It's hard to say no to that. Yes. Because what if you are wrong? Exactly. And so I said no. I turned it down. It was really hard. I went back to waitressing. Mm-hmm. and But now I had an attorney. So she started <laughs> reaching out to other publishers for me that she knew and said, like, I'm my client just had an offer. Um, would you take a meeting with her? And so that That's awesome. really helped me get into some meetings None of them went well. I left multiple <laughs> of those meetings crying. Um, one of them I'll never forget. Um, playing my songs, the same songs that I got to deal with. Like mm-hmm. I had my, you know, five demos that I was like, mm-hmm. these are my five really good songs. And I played them in one of these meetings and both publishers were on their phone texting Ugh. the entire time with the sound on. I could hear the doot, doot, doot. Like mm-hmm. they weren't taking notes. They were texting. They were texting. And of course I left and they did the classic, like stay in touch, send us songs, which means like, we're not interested in you kind Mm -hmm. of, they didn't even offer to set up any rights, which is kind of like sort of if a publisher is interested in you, usually they'll set you up with some of their writers to see how it goes. And they'll ask them now that I'm in this position, I I know the other side of it. My publisher will set me up with someone and be like, Hey, we're kind of looking at this writer, what did you think of them? And they'll call me after the mm-hmm. write and I'll give my honest opinion. And right. so I was on the other side of it though at the time. And, but they didn't, a lot of these publishers were like, we don't know this girl. We don't care about this girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and just sort of blew me off and that's part of it, <laughs> but it was hard and I was sad. And I watched a lot of my friends sign deals around me. A lot of the artists that I wrote the songs that they were mm-hmm. getting deals for, you know, I was the writer on them right. and, you know, maybe it was my idea that I brought in or like I wrote the bulk of the song and they're signing the deals. And I was You're like, I was really was sad. Me. <laughs> exactly. Um, but that happens. I think when you're, I wasn't a producer, I'm not, I wasn't an artist. I'm just a top liner. So you have to be like the best at what you're doing for yeah, that really to do. stand out because you don't have something else that, you know, that's like your only thing. Those, the artists and the producers, they are a writer and something else. I was just writing. So right. I, I had to prove that I was going to make money for them. And I think the biggest thing to keep in mind is whatever money they're giving you per year, which can range from 25 for your first deal, like 25,000 to I've heard people signing 50,000 mm-hmm. in Nashville, which is maybe on the higher end. But if you're signing a four year deal at 30,000 or 35, at the end of that deal, you're, over a hundred thousand dollars in debt. So you have to think like this person is betting that I'm going to make them a hundred thousand dollars like that. And when you put it that way, you're like, I understand why people maybe are hesitant to sign someone they don't know. You know, they're putting a lot of money on the line. It can really just happen with one song where that money that they have invested in you as a writer for them can be paid back instantly. Exactly. It takes one song, but until that one song, you Mm -hmm. know, they're giving you money that you're going to have to pay back eventually or not have to, but that hopefully you will. But um, anyway, I'm dragging this story out, but I ended up meeting a publisher through my attorney that I really liked, a company that I really loved. It was Disney Music Publishing in Nashville. 
and things were kind of moving forward with them. They had expressed interest to my attorney. We were sending over like all the songs, my whole catalog. That's cool. And as that was happening, I was in a write with an artist who was signed to Disney. And we all found out that the Disney office was unexpectedly shut down. Oh, no. (laughs) So that was like, like, I was pretty certain it was going to happen. Like I was like that I was going to sign there. And then I found out, of course, all hopes of that were crushed. And the publisher that had been there was like, I'm so sorry. If I get if you don't have a deal by the time I get a different job, mm-hmm. I'm going to sign you. But you'll probably find a deal before uh, then. At that point, I'm like, no, like that is a, I that need, is a Nashville yeah. story. Everything was going good. And then, and then the entire the company shut down. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, good thing I didn't sign before it shut down because then I would have not had a company anymore. Right. Um, But at that point, I was like, I had stopped really taking meetings. I was sort of thinking this was going to happen. So I had to start from square one sort of again. And I ended up reaching out to my my rep at BMI, who I mean, any if you can get in touch with a rep at BMI, ASCAP, wherever you are affiliated, they can be so helpful. And mine is Leslie Roberts, who is just a force of nature. She is incredible. And she had always she started listening to my songs when I first moved to Nashville and I recorded them myself on GarageBand and I wrote them by myself and they were bad, really bad. And she, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, was like, I don't know, there's something here that I like (laughs) and continued to meet with me. And I sort of sent her a desperate email, like the company I was going to sign at just shut down. Like, please, is there any place I haven't met with yet that, you know, might be a good fit? Right. And she's like, wait, have you met with Kelly at at Kingpen? I'm like, I don't even know what that is. I've never even heard of that company before. And she's like, how have you not? That's my best friend. So Kelly, my now publisher, and Leslie Roberts are best friends. And it turns out I had met Kelly in Key West at the festival. And I didn't put it together who she was. Um, Kelly and I met. And literally right away, it had never happened like this in any other meeting, right away, she's like, I've been wanting to sign someone like you and I've been wanting to sign a female writer. When can I get you set up with my writers to like, and I was like, I left and was like, I think like, and and, and granted, these were the same songs that I had shown all the other companies that didn't really care about me (laughs) and were on their phone. And she just, she listened to my music. She, we just hit it off. It was like sort of meant to be, I think. And I ended up writing with some of her writers, um, in the next like two weeks and we met up the next time we met, she said, I want to sign you. That's awesome. Let's make this happen. And then we ended up bringing Warner Chapel in on the deal. And actually all deals with Kingpin are now with Warner Chapel. I was the first signing of the joint, um, of them like joining together, but that ended up, I mean, it took almost eight months to negotiate everything, but we finally negotiated it all and signed it. And they have been incredible. They, are like my biggest champions. I mean, I, they always say like, I heard that said so many times when I moved here, like find your champion, find the person that just is excited about what you do, regardless of what other people think. Cause there's so much of like group think here, where as soon as one person, as soon as I had an offer, Mm -hmm. everyone that never cared about me was like, we knew you were, Oh my God, we love what you do. And I'm like, well, y'all never offered me a deal. Like I met with you and you Mm -hmm. didn't want to sign me and that's fine. But it's as soon as anything good starts happening, you see the people starting to come out they of the woodwork. They come woods. out of the woodwork, yeah. And and that's just the way it is. But yeah. I think finding the people that aren't like that, like Kelly didn't know much about me other than Leslie Roberts saying, this writer's good, you should meet with her. And she just listened to my songs and, and genuinely was like, I think you're really good. I don't know if everyone else does, but I think you're good and I'm going to sign you. And that that's- means so much more than people who just are suggested that you're good and then are like, oh, well, everyone else is offering. So I guess we'll make an offer too, Um, which is also fine if it's a great deal, take it. But Mm -hmm. I was very much like, I want to go with the person who I know actually believed in me first. Exactly. The people who would champion you if you weren't in the room. Exactly. 100%. So how is writing for a publisher different than solo writing in your bedroom growing up? A lot of things are different. I mean, the first thing being that 98% of the rights that I do, I mean, I'm writing four or five times a week right now. Most of those rights are set up by my publishers and 
they spend a lot of time thinking and planning and coming up with combinations of two or three writers, me and one or two other people in the room that they think will be good and will take my career to the next level. So I have rights with people that I've been writing with for years and I love writing with them. We get great songs and that's maybe half of what I do. And the other half of the rights that I do are like reach rights. This is my okay. publishers going out and being like, you got to write with this girl. You got to know who she is. Like she's going to write you a hit. They're talking me up, trying to make that happen. And the cool thing is that, you know, I'm, I, you get to write with people who are doing so many cool things, who know so much more than you are way better writer than you. Like mm -hmm. all of that. The scary thing is that you're writing with people who do so many cool things <laughs> are way better writer than you, all of that. And so, um, I definitely struggled at first, the first couple of months with sort of like, feeling like I'm not supposed to be there or like, when are they going to find out that I don't know what I'm doing? Imposter syndrome stuff. Um, but it, it only took a little bit of me do, doing these rights and being like, oh, they liked me and I actually was good and we got a good the song or we got a cut a or whatever. Yeah. And I realized like, okay, I am supposed to be here. I still sometimes have that moment where I'm like, what if I fail? What if I never write a good song again? <laughs> but um, for the most part, like doing it enough, you're like, okay, I, I continually prove to myself that I am worthy of being in these rooms. Um, so that's maybe the, the biggest difference. The other things that are different are that while I still, I still write by myself and I still write a lot of things like from the heart and with emotion, I, I also now approach the majority of my writing as a business. Like mm -hmm. I'm trying to make money here. I'm trying to build a career. Right. I'm trying to write songs that will help my publishers grow and, and continually prove to them that I'm worth being there and that I'm, somebody worth investing money and time into. Um, and so a lot of that comes down to like, I love writing ballads, but like, I can't write a ballad every day. Like I got to write some up tempos. Mm -hmm. I got to write some songs that like, how do I get a song on the radio? How do I right. pitch my own songs? How do I get songs cut um, by being in the room and like what I do outside of the room as well? And I didn't think that way as much when I didn't have a deal because there are higher stakes now where you know, people lose deals all the time. And that's a normal thing that happens in this town. You lose a deal, you get re-signed, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, especially when, if you haven't recouped a lot of the money that they've given to you, it's it's a normal thing. And it's not, you know, something, it's not a shameful thing. It happens all the time. But at the same time, it's like, man, I, I went through the process of meeting right. with publishers for years and eight months of negotiations. And like, <laughs> I really like my publishers. I don't want to do that again. So I'm, if I, unless I, you know, it happened naturally, like I would love to stay with these publishers. So I'm continually like, okay, I need to make sure I'm adding value here. So are you, are you always coming in with prepared ideas specifically catered for the writers that you're working with that day? For the most part, yeah. Like I try and have, I mean, I have a long list of titles and ideas and hooks in my notes. Um, and a lot of times the night before I'll look through and be like, okay, who am I writing with tomorrow? What do I have that might work? If I don't have anything, then I spend. Is it always other publishing deal writers or sometimes is it artists or is it Yes, both? it's both. Definitely. Sometimes it's just, it's actually rare that I'm just with other writers. I do love when that happens because you're just in there writing the best song. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily for anyone. And sometimes that, that those types of rights are the ones where I've had the most success with like pitching and getting an outside cut or things like that, which is really hard mm -hmm. these days to do. Um, but for the most part, it's writing with an artist. So I'll, if I haven't heard of them, listen to their music, check out their social media, kind of get their vibe. There are times where I can tell like, okay, this is an artist who I can tell that they're not writing about like their life story all the time. Right. They'll, they'll just write the best idea. So that might be like, okay, what hooks do I have that seem like they could be a radio hit kind mm -hmm. of thing. And then sometimes you listen and you're like, okay, they're 100% writing about their life story here. So maybe I'll come in with a melody or I'm going to really research what's going on in their life. Mm -hmm. Like look at their social media, look at their TikTok, see what they're going through to then figure out like, how can I help support the fact that right. they're going to want to write about their own experience? That was, have you ever uh, heard of Aaron Ratier? Yes. Yeah. He's he awesome. Is, he's a wonderful man and a, an amazing songwriter. But years ago, I was just thrown into a writer's round with him at Belcourt. Of oh, my all gosh. Places. Amazing. And I had no idea the credentials behind him. And he was saying things. I wrote this with my buddy, uh, with my buddy Miranda. And like, <laughs> like, I had no idea. I was like, cool. And uh, after 
it must have been an hour or two after we played. I learned his credentials. And then I went up and just asked him point blank. I was like, hey, man, I'm a young writer. Do you have any advice for how to be better? And he said, man, okay. If, uh, if you're writing with an artist, let them tell you a story. And you just kind of pick out the totally. words and you puzzle piece them together. Because they're never going to like anything that you say more than they already think themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. So that yeah. always really stuck with me. I think that's so true. And I, I think that I always say this to people. Um, I do some like mentoring and like songwriting lessons as well and things like that. And I say all the time, being a good writer and being a good co-writer are different skills. Mm-hmm. You And ideally you're good at both. But I have written with people that are like, you're the best freaking writer that I've ever encountered when I listen to your songs that you've written by yourself like you are clearly a genius but you can't co-write because if especially if you're writing for an artist like being able to set aside your own ego or your own ideas of like well this idea is going to be way better if we do it my way and I know that it'll be better because I'm the seasoned writer mm-hmm. here and maybe this artist has never co-written but it's their song that they're going right. to sing all the time if you're if you're overruling everything they want to do just to try and make it the best possible song, they're never going to want to write with you again. Um, And there is a happy medium of like write a good song, but also make it something that they feel is honest, especially if you're writing for an an artist that they feel is honest to them, that they're going to want to sing every night. And maybe the best piece of advice I got was from um, a guy named Mike Daly, who he lives in LA. He, um, runs Hollywood records and, and Disney publishing out there. And he told me before I had my deal, um, that he always tells his writers, I would rather you not get a cut the first time, but get a second, right. than the other way around. So if you write with an artist and maybe you don't get the best song ever, but they leave going like this girl Mm -hmm. understood me and really let me tell my story. It's way better to get a second right with them and then get a cut. It's developing a long-term relationship. Exactly. Then get a cut, but then be like, well, the song is really good, but I hated writing with them. Like that's not sustainable to just, I mean, sure you can get a bunch of maybe first time cuts, but you're not building relationships. Yeah. That's one of the things that I think is so important just because you can, you can write songs all day long, but if you're not a good listener and a co-write, you might miss the most important thing somebody will say. Totally. Absolutely. It's, and I think that comes down more to just being a good conversationalist Mm -hmm. and I, I'm friends with a couple of journalists and other podcasters and things and people who can't hold a two-sided conversation, I think really struggle. Absolutely. It's because they don't know how to respond appropriately. Yeah. And listen without thinking, what am I going to say next? Oh my God. What's my next? And that <laughs> translates to songwriting of like, if someone, if your co-writer or your artist in the room is telling you about their own I want to write this song. You know, I just went through a breakup. I don't really have a title. And if the whole time you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me let, me, let them finish what I'm what they're saying so that I can say, OK, but I have this title that I brought in. It's like that's not useful. They are telling you something right. that they want to talk about. Like, listen and see, like you said, translate that yourself into an idea for them. They will always have the best idea in their own mind. Exactly. And That's, it's just your job to to pick out the pieces, <laughs> the good parts of that, and how to put it into a song and translate it into lyric. Basically. Oh, translating is a perfect word yeah. for. Uh, I would, I would, I mean, I'm not a publishing writer. I've had a couple of cuts, but you're translating what an artist needs into a product that they actually want to sell. Totally, 100. That's exactly it. Well, we've talked a lot about songwriting, and certainly that is a huge part of your life. But let's talk now about your world outside of music. You uh, you are, I would assume, the only founder of Hope on the Row. Yes. Yeah. So tell us about Hope on the Row. Tell us about your nonprofit. Yeah. So Hope on the Row is an organization I started in June of 2020, middle of the pandemic. And Hope on the Row serves the unhoused community here in Nashville. We serve every week, every Sunday, um, about 200 people experiencing homelessness. We uh, pass out meals, clothing, supplies, drinks, kind of like a one-stop shopping for anything you might need basic need wise. Um, and I started it, it, it really actually coincides with the, the publishing journey because I had been for about three years of living here, the, the three years that I lived here before signing my deal, I had been hyper-focused on, I need a publishing deal. That's all that matters. I worked myself to death and didn't do anything besides, 
I mean, I was working nine to five or whatever, writing six to nine or vice versa, writing 11 to two and two to six and then waitressing six to 10 or 11. And I had no time for anything else. And it was very both ends. Yeah. And I I realized when I did sign my deal, I actually signed the day before the national lockdown pen to paper. So the day after my deal. I was stuck in my apartment and with nothing to do. We didn't start <laughs> Zoom writing for a couple of weeks. And then even when we did, I had I suddenly had so much free time. I was working like three jobs and all of a sudden all I had to do was write songs and I was making money doing it. And I couldn't go out. I couldn't see friends. And I realized like, okay, I have the thing that I wanted so bad, but why do I still not feel 100% fulfilled? Like this was all my life was about for three years was getting mm-hmm. to this point. And I still feel like something is kind of missing. And I realized like being volunteering and service work has always been really important to me. I've done it, you know, when I was a kid with my family in college, I sought out opportunities and I realized like I have all this time now. It's no longer, it doesn't have to all be about work and all about me. What can I do to make this about something bigger than myself? And I really just started, I didn't plan on starting a nonprofit. That was never a thought in my mind. I just started posting on my Instagram being like, hey, I'm going to go just drive around in my car with a mask on and pass out water and snacks to the people at the red lights that are experiencing homelessness. Um, if you want to send me some money, I'm going to go into the store and get everything like Venmo me money and I'll, I'll do this on your behalf, basically, thinking I might get a couple hundred dollars from my friends. I ended up getting like, four or $5,000 in a couple days to spend on supplies and things like that. Um, I think everyone was kind of searching for how can I help the world? I mean, it was right in the middle of, I mean, this was shortly after George Floyd had been murdered during the uprising that was happening and the pandemic. So I think it was just like, we need something positive. That's how I felt. I need to feel like I'm doing something positive here because there's so much negativity in the world. And I started doing this with a couple friends, going and getting um, supplies and taking backpacks around downtown Nashville of any type of supplies, buying pizzas, giving out food. And it very slowly upgraded from us with backpacks to me and, you know, a couple friends out of the trunk of my car taking stuff downtown. And we were seeing the same people every week and they started to remember us. And it started to be like a fun social thing where we'd pull up and, and there'd be, you know, maybe 10 or 15 people experiencing homelessness that we knew by name. And we were like, Hey, we got pizzas for you guys. And, um, somebody eventually actually a publisher, a friend of mine who's a publisher said like, Hey, if you actually made this, um, like a tax deductible donation, you know, that like every publisher on music row would give you money because they need to for their taxes and they want to help. And Mm -hmm. they actually know you. So they know where the money's going. And I was like, Oh, that's an idea. And also, what am I going to do on my taxes now that I have thousands of dollars <laughs> coming in that is not income? Right. Um, so I started researching, how do I start a nonprofit? What do you do? And just started filling out the paperwork and figuring it out as I went. Um, I have no background in any of this, so it was very much a learning experience. But we ended up becoming a 501c3 shortly after, a couple months later. And um, we grew to now having a base of 50, 60 volunteers. We probably have 15 or 20 people out on the street with us every week. And now it's no longer out of the trunk of my car. We have a lineup of tables. It looks sort of like a block party happening. Mm -hmm. And people know we're coming at the same time every week, 2 p.m. And so we have, by the time I pull up in my car, we probably have 100 people in line waiting to get served. And we, as I've learned more about this community, and, and a lot of these people are now like family to me. I mean, I've I give my number out to people all the time. If you need anything, call me, you know, I'll help you. And we've gotten a couple of people into permanent housing and, um, we meaning me, I tend to do this Mm -hmm. thing where I act like there's a lot of people behind (laughs) this. It's me. It's really like me behind my computer. And I, my boyfriend Tristan is awesome and he'll do anything I ask him to do. And then our volunteers come out and serve with us. But are there any, uh, rumors about people who experience homelessness that you'd like to dispel to the listeners. Cause I'm, I'm, I have had a perspective shift on that lately. And it's, it was partly because of the community I grew up in. It was just like, we, we don't talk to them. We don't look right. at them and they're people. Absolutely. They're people. They are people. Um, I think the biggest thing that I hear a lot, and I don't think people mean this 
mean to sound rude by saying this or mean or whatever, but it's, it's just uninformed is what it is. But a lot of people will say, well, homeless people want to be homeless. They don't want to change their situation. Um, especially when it comes to encampments, we have a couple major encampments here in Nashville that have been shut down or relocated or whatever. And a lot of people will say like, well, you know, the people in the shelters are fine because they don't want to be homeless. They're, they're trying to get themselves out of the situation, but these people in the encampments, they just want to be homeless, which that is not true. I can tell you, we served at one of the encampments in Germantown for about a year Mm -hmm. before they shut it down. And every single person in that encampment was on the waiting list for housing. There really? was not a single person that wasn't on the wait list. They want, and a lot of them would work. They worked jobs. They lived in tents and they'd go work a job and right. come back. And, um, if you asked any of them, like, Hey, if we could put you into low income housing, would you go? They would all go. None of them wanted to stay in a tent. So I hear that a lot and that's just uninformed. Um, and the other one, other, uh, maybe, thing that people say is or think is that homeless people are scary. Um, I thought that as a kid, I mean, I grew up in Chicago and I would get scared when my parents would, my dad would bring meals to people, Mm -hmm. um, or like, you know, order an extra meal at dinner and then put it into go box and give it to someone on the street. And I was really little. And I remember being kind of scared, like, what if they hurt me or grab me or something? And of course it's the same with any person ever. Some people are scary. There are going to be people walking around who look rich and famous who Mm -hmm. might be scary. It's the same with people experiencing homelessness. Um, I've never been in a situation where I've felt threatened or um, fearful for anything. I've never been robbed. I've never been harassed. I mean, I, I work with this community directly by myself. I'm 25. I'm a woman. Obviously I I'm safe. I don't go places in the middle of the night, things Mm -hmm. like that, but I've always felt safe. And, um, these are people just like us and they just want like anyone in the world. We all want to be loved and mm-hmm. recognized and respected. That's the biggest thing. Everyone deserves respect right. um, and not to be on a different tier of humanity. Something I've heard that uh, you can confirm or deny is that it, they can, people experiencing homelessness can tend to uh, lose their identity because their people aren't using their name proper stuff like that so they they kind of lose a sense of humanity and i feel like something as simple as saying hi to somebody can really make a 100 especially like i mean i do this i try and keep things in my car like snacks water bottles things like that to pass out to people at red lights and if you live in a city you know what that's like um the worst feeling in the world is sitting at a red light and avoiding eye contact mm-hmm. when there was a literal human standing right there. Um, and who needs help? there have, yeah, who needs help? And there have been times where I don't have things to give them and I'll roll down my window and be like, Hey, I don't have anything in my car right now, but I just wanted to say, Hey, what's your name? Um, nine times out of 10, they're like, Oh, that's okay. Thanks so much for saying, Hey, I'm Jimmy. Like, nice to meet you. I'm Ava. I come around here a lot. I'll try and have something to give you next time. Simple as that. You're no longer awkwardly, Avoiding eye contact, acting like there is someone, there isn't a human right next to you. And that, that conversation probably won't last more than 30 seconds until the light turns green, Exactly, but it could make their entire day. Yeah. And and I think the biggest thing that I wanted to do with Hope on the Row was obviously giving someone a meal or a pair of pants or something like that. That may not be life changing to them. Sometimes it is, you know, we've had people come in who have been like, I haven't eaten in five days and they collapse on the ground and you're like spoon feeding them. That's happened maybe three times, but for the most part, you're not changing someone's life with a home cooked meal um, or clothes. But what we've always tried to do is give people autonomy over what they want rather than saying, here's what you get. You get this thing that I've packaged up or you get this shirt that I picked out right. for you. We try and say like, hey, what kind of what colors do you like for shirts? What size are you? Um what kind of cereal do you want? We do a cereal bar and we have got like eight choices, not like here you get Cheerios. It's like, no, right. do you want 2% milk? Do you want almond milk? You know, little things like that, that are just saying like, Hey, you're a human and you get just because you're experiencing homelessness doesn't mean you should be forced to take the scraps right. that someone hands you. The, and the they cold can say, hot dog yeah, that comes exactly. out of a styrofoam. And I think like in a lot of these huge shelters, we have the Nashville rescue mission here in Nashville and they are serving a much needed you know, service here. We need that. But because they're so big and they serve so many people, they don't really have the time or the opportunity to say like, 
do you want jeans or do you want khakis? You get what you get. You go right. in and through a window or whatever, they say, here's in your size, here's what you get. Or maybe not even in your size. Here are your clothes. Um, and what what I love to be able to do is like when someone picks out a shirt that they love and they put it on like, wow, this looks so good on me. And you're like, yeah, dude, you look fly. Like You, you see look great. the humanity return to their eyes a little bit because they yes. got something that they want. And you want. get to pick it out. Yeah, maybe pink isn't your color. Okay, like pick out blue then, you know, like right. and that's something that we take for granted. And I think everyone should have the opportunity to have. And that may not be changing a life, but it starts to restore the respect and the humanity that everybody deserves. So for people who have resources or time or uh, money that they would like to contribute, how can they get involved with Hope on the Row? Um, yeah, it's a great question. So if you're wanting to volunteer, we serve every Sunday from 2 to 3.15 um, downtown Nashville, right by City Winery and behind the National Rescue Mission. Um, and we have on our website, which is hopeontheroad.org or our Instagram at hopeontheroad, R-O-W, like Music Row. Um, <laughs> that's where the name came from. Uh, we have a sign-up link on there. You can also DM us or email us, which is on our website, and say, hey, I want to volunteer. What do I do? Um, and that all goes to me. Are I there will qualifications respond. for volunteers? No. Okay. Just that you're a nice person um, and you are there because you want to be there. Um, anyone can do it. If, you know, if you're under 18, we just ask that you have a parent there. We have people who bring their kids, like little kids. It's everyone is welcome as long as you're, you know, going to smile and be nice to people. Um, anyone can come and there's no training or anything. We just, I'll tell you what to do when you get there. So that is a great, you can volunteer like whenever you want. There's no like minimum hours a month or whatever. When you're in town, if you want to come in once, that's great. If you want to come every week, that's great. But check out our social media or we got Facebook as well or our website. Um, if you're wanting to donate money, we have Venmo and PayPal, which are also all on our social media. Um, and it's all tax deductible because we are a 501c3. And then if you are wanting to donate clothing or other supplies like tents, backpacks, shoes, clothes, anything that's gently used, our rule is if you would still wear it, then that's great. Mm -hmm. If you are grossed out by it, do not give it to us, <laughs> please. What kinds of resources, food, clothing are uh, the the best things that people can give if they do have them? Or, because obviously you're not going to want to give somebody a box of uncooked macaroni. What right. kinds of things exactly. are best for you? So that food is a, that's a great question with food because um, we'll try if someone does give us uncooked mac and cheese, like I'll try and find someone or a food bank that will take it. Mm -hmm. But ideally, um, to be really smart about what you're giving people, even if you don't donate to us, if you're just giving it out on the street, mm -hmm. um, like with canned things, a pop tab can is ideal because um, if you need a can opener and you don't have a can opener, you're not going to be able to eat it. Um, but canned non-perishable things are great, especially with a pop tab. Any type of like um, non-perishable crackers, chips, um, cookies, things like that. Beverages that don't expire or need to be refrigerated, we take. And then as far as clothing goes, as long as it's in good condition and clean, we'll take almost anything, even like formal stuff. Like it's not as common that we have, you know, a prom dress. Like, I don't know who we're going to give that to, but you'd be surprised when sometimes when we have those really nice items, mm -hmm. people are, oh my gosh, my daughter, I want to, she's going to prom and I've never been able to help her get a dress. Like something like that. You All just right. never know. So we'll take a lot of things. I always say like, if you're going to take a bag of things to Goodwill, you're certain they're all clean and in good enough condition. I'll take it because if things don't get taken after a couple weeks of us putting them out for people, I'll take them to Goodwill anyway. Okay. So um, you can take stuff to us first and we'll see if we can find a home so for it. So if people have clothes and food that they would like to contribute, uh, they can reach out through your website and yes. arrange a drop-off yep. somewhere? We have a donation box, which is at 100 Taylor Street, um, the Arts Collective in Germantown. Uh, we have a little box there. Stuff can be taken there. They're open 9 to 5, uh, Monday through Saturday, I think. And or um, if that doesn't work for you, you can always email us, reach out to us. You could bring it on a Sunday when we're serving. Even if you can't stay, just drop it off and leave. That's great, too. But pretty much any questions anyone has, we're a small organization. It's really me and a couple people that I when I'm overloaded, I ask them to help me with things. Mm -hmm. And any message, any email, anything like that is going to go straight to me. So I can always point you in the right direction. And we're super grateful for any whether it's time, money, clothing, 
a reshare on social media right. or even just reading some of the stuff we post and, and internally going, what are my own biases or things that I have done in the past that I want to reframe or that even is so awesome and helpful. And if we can be the reason for that, then that's incredible. That's great. Well, Ava, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. This is I'm so delighted fun. that I've actually gotten a chance to sit and talk to you like this because it's been a long time. It's been a long time. <laughs> it's been a blast. Well, is there anything else you would like to say before we sign off today? Oh my gosh. Well, I guess if you want to follow Hope on the Row, that means a ton to me. My Instagram is ava.sapelsa. <laughs> you can follow me too. I post a lot about my I will link all of your stuff in the episode description. Amazing. Other than that, be a good person. Be nice and (laughs) and write songs. Well, Ava, thank you so much for coming on. This has been the Nashville Tour Stop Podcast broadcast live from the 8th room looking at the Versace wallpaper that is definitely... Definitely fancier than myself. But Likewise, me too. Please check us out on the web at NashvilleTourStop.com. You can find our full show schedule there, all of our podcasts, everything that is ever related to Nashville Tour Stop, you will find there. Also, follow our social medias, all at Nashville Tour Stop yet again. But even though this is the end of this week, we will be right back here next week with more of the show. And please, until then, remember that all roads lead right back here to the Nashville Tour Stop. Yeah.